play i'm james i'm justin i'm corinne and i'm cleo and on this episode we are going to be talking about the novel howl's moving castle by diana Wynne jones howl's moving castle is about a well i, I don't know if it's a young woman or an old woman i how you would technically <laughs> count this but uh, a young woman named sophie hatter uh who is cursed by the witch of the wastes and becomes an old woman and ends up going on a series of adventures uh, as she sets off to have an adventure, uh, something that was always sort of forbidden for her to have as the oldest of three siblings, and goes off and meets a the the evil wizard Howl who lives in a moving castle that wanders across the countryside, and and hijinks ensue. <laughs> so, at one thing that we certainly came up against as we were picking this and I something I'd kind of like to get out of the way right off the bat is that I I think for a lot of people uh Howl's Moving Castle kind of comes to mind first as a film just because uh, it was a, a Studio Ghibli film uh Hayao Miyazaki directed uh very popular had uh like Christian Bale Billy Crystal a lot of you know kind of big name people I I feel like a lot of people know this as as a movie first but it was it was based on this book, and I don't want to get too far into kind of book and movie differences since we're that is not that is not the watch for this uh, for this segment. So ergo, it does not exist. Um, but I did want to talk a little bit about um, kind of where we all came into this, uh, how we had first experienced the book, the film, and kind of do like a very a very light thing, especially to kind of emphasize the fact that I, at least to my eyes, the book and the film are very different beasts. Um, so I would really kind of want to emphasize that as we go in, especially for anyone who might be coming into this episode thinking that they are, they're all up to date because they've seen the movie. Um, so how did, how did everyone first come across Howl's Moving Castle? Uh, well, I, I mean, I definitely saw the movie first. Um, uh, it was, it was when I was sort of like going through all of the studio, uh, Ghibli films and just like you know princess mononoke and spirited away and like i found them and i wanted to watch everything because they're amazing and Howl's movie castle is actually one of my favorites uh so i've seen it a bunch of times but i never read the book unlike almost everybody that i know i took forever to watch studio ghibli movies so like i had seen spirited away in high school because i had a bunch of friends like sit down to watch it and that kind of happened but it didn't really happen for any other of like miyazaki's films um, and so I ended up, uh, like, a year or two ago doing, like, a a mini Miyazaki marathon and did uh, did this amongst others, saw this for the first time. So it's a little fresher for me, I guess, than it might be for some. Although it's still, like, I'm a couple years out from having seen it. Yeah, so I also saw the movie first. Um, God, I don't even remember what year that was at this point. But... I immediately ordered the book afterwards and I don't, I feel this is long ago enough that I don't remember if I actually finished the book or not, but I don't, I remember that I didn't recall the ending when I read through it this time, which makes me think that I didn't finish it. Um, but I also hadn't realized that it was a trilogy and, um, fun fact, the narrator, given we always start talking about narrators, cause I, I don't know about the rest of you, but I listened to the audiobook um, as, as well as having a mass market paper back copy. 
Uh, but the narrator for this was all, is my all-time favorite narrator for audiobooks, um, Jenny Sterling, I want to say. I, I shouldn't know the name of my favorite narrator, but uh, she also narrated <laughs> Doomsday Book by Connie Willis. Uh. Uh, I also listened to the audiobook, and um, I can't remember the narrator off the top of my head, but she spoke very slowly. She was good. She was good, but like... I had to put it at 1.2 speed just to feel like she was speaking at a normal person pace. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I had her at 1.5, and that's and it's weird to go back to normal speed and have everything sound like molasses suddenly. Uh, but she's very good <laughs> at 1.5 speed. That's so interesting. She's my favorite narrator at 1.5 speed. <laughs> she's my third favorite narrator at one time speed. Uh, yeah, I had, I had also come across the film first. Uh, I, I saw it back in back in two thousand four uh, when when it came out. Uh, I was I was a big Studio Ghibli fan ever since ever since I was a kid and was very excited to get to see stuff in theaters. I this is also uh, I certainly one of my favorites. I I've, I've never sat down and tried to rank them, but um, but I I read the book uh, pretty shortly after I, I saw the movie. Um, so when I went back and read it this time, I. I was rereading my my much loved and well worn uh, paperback copy from from middle school, um, but yeah. So I, I I've seen the movie a bunch. I've read the book a bunch, um, and yeah. So uh, for for everyone who kind of hadn't read the book before, were you? What did you think of kind of the differences? Again, keeping sort of very high level, but mainly kind of as a as a point of reference for someone who might be coming in just having seen the movie. Uh, I mean, they're they're very different, but at the same time, there's like there's a bunch of scenes that are kind of like note for note, like the same between the book and the movie. Um, but then also, there's a lot of things that are just real, real different. So it was kind of it was actually interesting knowing the movie as well as I do and being able to say like, oh, this is exactly this scene, or oh, this is completely different, and and just sort of keeping a mental checklist of scenes that were the same versus things that were different and. Uh, story elements, like world-building elements that were different, and just all that sort of different stuff. I feel weird saying this, because Miyazaki films do tend to be very character-oriented and about, like, smaller moments and kind of not um, obsessing over plot over character. But I do feel that the book is a little bit more like in the smaller moments than being plot driven or plot focused. Like, and I actually think I do like the movie a little bit better as a story. <laughs> I'm trying to because I, so I can't say for sure like I like the book, I like the movie better. They're, they're both different enough, right? But with the movie, it seems to be much more of a like, okay, here are the beats. This is like the story arc. And it's clearer that way, and it has a little bit—it's a little bit more fleshed out that way. Whereas the book, for me, what I enjoy about it isn't that it's like super cliffhangery or um, like you like fast-paced. Like it's kind of—I enjoy it because it's a little bit light and it's fun. It's a little Terry Pratchett-esque in a few ways just mood wise like not quite the humor but just the way at least it makes me as a reader feel like it's really good if you're stressed out and you want like a really light fun book to read this is definitely something i would recommend 
Yeah, I one of the things that I like a lot about it is I actually really agree that normally Miyazaki movies really do shine in those character moments, and it's it's hard to find uh, something that Miyazaki would adapt in such a way that has fewer character moments than the source material. But yeah, it I, I think it really is the case here, and I think it keeps a lot of like those great character themes, and I think there's a lot of things in it that make it very clear why it would be appealing as as an adaptation into into a studio ghibli film because yeah it is like there are these kind of spectacular visual elements there are these character moments it's a lot about i mean it 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 does keep a lot of those themes right that you do find in other ghibli films these senses of family and in this case found families that i i like a lot that really carry through but on the other hand, I think one of the things that I, I think is most interesting, and I think a big part of why, again, Cleo, I very much agree with what you're saying, that it they are very hard to compare, and it's very difficult to say that you like one necessarily more than the other, is that the film is very much like an anti-war film. Like, that's, I, I think that that's just, like, the one of the main themes to that that's just not in this at all. Yeah, the um, war is mentioned, like, once, right? No, I... And, like, in passing? I mean, the there's the war hasn't even, like started happening in the book there's there's mentions of a war of war being on the horizon and that's like the the impetus to to get the the king's brother back but because he's a great general right that's the whole thing he's like he's worried that the war is on their doorstep i guess i i think the almost the more important thing there though is that it the war it doesn't like the fact that we aren't sure is what's right like it's not part of the book it's a passing line right it's not a plot point at all yeah it's it does not matter. That's not what this book is about. This book is very different. And so I think that's one of the big things is that, at least to me, Howl's Moving Castle, the first thing that comes to mind is that it's about found families. And the second thing is that it's about, is that it's a very pacifist uh, anti-war film. And that's just not what the novel is about at all. Um, which is, uh, again, to to what Cleo was saying, where it's hard to say that this one is better or worse than the other. That's not a bad thing. It's just not what the book's about. Um, which I think is one of the biggest things that struck me with that, where it really, I think, is very clear that it the film is not just a film adaptation. It it pulls these moments, and Corinne, like you were saying, these kind of beat-for-beat beat moments, even, and sort of uses them in different ways to illuminate different things about the characters or to illuminate different points about be it themes or messages, it it really does a... I think it's really a great adaptation. Uh, doubly so because you don't then go back to the book and say, oh, well, I know what's going to happen because I've seen the ending already. You know, it takes you two hours to get to the ending in a movie and it takes you, you know, much longer than that to get there in the book and then it feels kind of boring. But you, you, it really is something you can go back to and find, like, a whole new story that still feels, like, immediately comforting and familiar. So I will... I do want to say before we head into spoiler territory that this is a really fast read um it's a short book whether you're reading it or you're listening to it it was like what a little less than eight hours i want to say as an audiobook uh and shorter than that if you're listening at 1.5 speed um it's really fun uh it's it is technically it's, it's a little bit weird because I think now it would be categorized as YA, but it kind of it came out in a time that was a little bit pre YA as we know it now. Like it was definitely a book for young readers, um, 
but not explicitly teenagers, I guess. Uh, but it's very enjoyable, even without it being super grim dark, which I know is what is like the hot thing right now. It's death and murder everywhere. Like this is very the polar opposite of that, which it was a really nice break for me, considering most of the books that come out now are <laughs> full of death and destruction. Yeah, I I mean it's probably kind of evident from the way I was describing the the way I came to the book, but I I I adore this book. This was one of my favorite books when I was younger. This is one of my favorite movies. It's I I've read this so many times and which is saying something cuz I'm a very very slow reader. So that I can get through something multiple times is it it really is. It does it moves very quickly. It's it's structured in such a way that it's very easy to do just one more chapter, but it's not reading something I don't know. Like I remember reading like holes as a kid and being like, okay, chapter seven is a paragraph. Like that feels dumb, but <laughs> like it, you're getting something substantial in each one. And each chapter is structured in such a way that it's, it, it largely has a story unto itself. And it's got those great chapter title, like titles that are like in which this happens, whatever. Um, like it really is structured in, in a really nice, pleasant, very readable way. And yeah, it's not grim dark. Like it has like, I, I want to call it mature themes, but I know that that means something else. It it doesn't like treat the reader as not intelligent, I guess is the best way I can put it. Like it trusts you to be piecing together the plot. It trusts you to be figuring things out as you go, making connections, et cetera. It doesn't just lay it all bare. And even when it does kind of like have its moments of revelation, it, it doesn't do it in this just like, ah, ha, ha, you never would have noticed these obvious like clues that I've been laying out for you. It's, it does it does a lot with that and it's which is nice but yeah and that it's it's fundamentally a book about happy things is it's i don't know it it feels good to read it you know there's no point where you're just like oh this is a slog i've got to get through this part or anything like that i it really is just a joy yeah i mean i feel like it's the highest praise i can really give something like this is that like I ne there was no point at which I just wanted to get through what i was getting like what i was reading to like get to something better I was, like, very consistently not bored. I was very consistently invested in this story, which is honestly kind of rare. My attention will dip, you know, at a lot of random points in a book when, when a scene is just kind of feels unnecessary or a little slow, and it didn't once happen the whole time I was reading this. Also, great characters, I would say. It was... There is not a single character that I didn't feel was flat and they all sat like their dialogue is all very different their behavior is all very different they're all distinct they're all fun um and it's it's a funny book like there's a lot of comedy in this and i again i guess that's one of the things that reminded me of terry pratchett the humor is a little different for sure but it's a fun book uh so with that do we want to move into our our spoiler section yeah yeah i think it's a good idea cool uh, which means it's time to announce our next topic. Uh, for once we conclude this witch's topic, we're going to be going into something that actually, I guess, kind of looking at it, sort of tangentially related. We're going to be doing Fairy Tales 2.0. Uh, we are going to be reading The Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter, which is a collection of short stories, I believe. Uh, we are going to be watching Shrek 1 and 2, classic modern... I don't, it, very successful modern fairy tale movies. Um, <laughs> I, at what point do you get to call Shrek a classic? I feel like it. I feel like it's there. I feel like Shrek like, is a classic. Yeah, it's there now. 
I, yeah. I never know at what point it's like, at how old does something need to be when you, you've got enough hindsight to say like, nope, yep, that, that made it, you know? Because it's so easy to like when you're like in the moment and excited about something. Are we there with Shrek? I think we're there. Yeah, we're there. Sweet. All right. So fairy tale classics, Shrek 1 and 2. Uh, and we're going to be playing The Wolf Among Us, uh, which is doubly interesting because they just announced a season two of that. So I guess we'll figure out what, what the deal is there. It's certainly not going to be about by the time we record, but that might be a good uh, a good refresher before season two of that comes out. So that'll be exciting. But so it's going to be season one of the wolf among us, the telltale series of games based on, uh, the fables comics. Uh, and uh, I was as someone who's read fables and played the games don't need to have read fables to enjoy the game. Uh, easy to just jump in. So no, no extra homework there, but yeah, so that's going to be our next topic. But for now, we're going to jump into spoilers for Howl's moving castles, Howl's moving castle singular he's gone into real estate (laughs) well i mean kind of multiple let's let's jump right into that so one of the big things for howl's moving castle this spoilers by the way we're there um (laughs) one scene that i remember loving from the movie and that i do think they do uh, a good job with in in the book i say they as though it's i mean well sure we'll use they as the singular as dan owen jones does a really good job with in the book is is the moving scene and kind of the idea that the you have the literal moving castle, the castle that moves around the, the plains, but you also have the fact that this castle has many, many entrances and is kind of everywhere at once. Um, I, always, I, I always like that so much as just kind of this sense of it sort of doubling down on the idea of the moving castle because, I mean, it's, it would be so easy to just have a moving castle and that's that's magical as shit. Like, you don't need doors and all sorts of other places but like that that is kind of double down on that and then where they move castles and they change all the doors it it's such a i feel like it's such a great example of what makes the book so fun because it's this great mix of it's this very magical moment right because it's this big spell that changes everything but it's also this very human thing of just kind of the chaos of moving house it and kind of the way that the family does that all together, I it's it really is one of my my favorite bits in the whole thing. And like having Howell be excited about the flowers, and Sophie getting excited about like being like opening up a flower shop, but also being conflicted because it's her family's old hat shop, and it's like bringing back a lot of memories. And it, I it really is for me just such a successful scene. I was wondering, are, are there any other scenes that are like that for other people? Because I. I really love the way that the story blends kind of that the high fantasy, but also the very human elements of it. And I think that this is a really good sort of microcosm of that. Does anyone else have like a favorite scene from the story? I think for me, um, it's, it's toward the end and it's when um, Sophie's entire family all at once shows up to the castle through various entrances, various doors Um and just the kind of like this over like it's kind of this overwhelming moment for Sophie because it's like someone shows up and it's like okay this is weird but I get it it makes sense why this would happen and then it just keeps happening as more people within her family or that she's become connected to her just start showing up to the castle and then it's just full of like basically you know her entire original family and her entire new family um, and and sort of where it builds from there. For me, it's literally anything having to do with Calcifer because Calcifer is my favorite character, <laughs> and yeah, hands down, any interaction with him is just 
hilarious, especially the way he's narrated is just fantastic. Definitely weird not hearing Billy Crystal's voice in the narration, though, like in the audiobook. Yeah, reading the actual book, I could only hear Billy Crystal's voice in my head. That was just, there there was no escaping it. Almost a benefit, honestly. Almost worth it to read the book versus listening to the audiobook just so that you can maintain Billy Crystal's voice in your head for (laughs) Calcifer. Yeah, he really is. He's he's a fun character. I feel like there's no two ways around it. But just that idea of like a a friendly but mischievous demon. It I don't know. It's such a good example of just like what makes the book fun, especially when you you compare it to so many. Again, uh, going back to Cleo, what you were saying, like so many things would be like, oh, he's like this bad guy in the house. Whatever. It's like no, he's he's friendly he likes to eat logs and like bacon drippings and like is happy when you throw him something like tasty and sings a song about a saucepan and (laughs) just kind of like gets lonely and sits around in the hearth and like wants sophie to come talk to him it i don't know it those those little human elements just in in everybody it just makes it i don't know it's it's just fun it's just nice you know uh, I really liked all the all the parts where Sophie was sort of unintentionally using magic. Because um, bef- before I, like, picked up on what was going on, because Sophie is not magical in the movie, so I was not, like... It, it's not something I was looking for. Um, but bef- as I was sort of, like, piecing together what was going on, it was, it was kind of, like, a really cool, like... Uh, matching up the the result of the spell or the magic that Sophie like wove into the object she was handling and like realizing like what was going on and that was pretty early on like back with the with the hat shop and everything um, but that that was fun sort of just like piecing together all the the times when Sophie accidentally made things magical yeah so I let's let's build off of that so it I feel like Generally, we, we don't do a great job of talking about our topic in each of the individual episodes, but I, I really like to do it for this one because I, and I think that that's, that's a great point because it's, it's sort of one of the things that, you know, we really very much didn't want to talk about before going into this, but why I think um, House Moving Castle makes for a good, a good read for this, this particular topic and even say more so than the movie because in this one we get not one witch but two. We get the Witch of the Wastes, who's kind of the more traditional witch, right? We've got her as a villain. Uh, we've got, like, a fire demon who is, like, controlling her heart. We've got all this this sort of sense of uh, someone who has made this sacrifice to some sort of elemental force um, and has kind of sort of lost themselves as a result of that. And they've made this contract, you know, the very, very traditional kind of witch. But then we have Sophie, who is... I guess sort of as is alluded to, to, to pull from the movie slightly, you know, the kind of witch who cleans. Um, and she has this much more sort of homespun, uh, beneficial or like kind of happy, pleasant magic where she just sort of talks life into things and just sits there and has conversations with inanimate objects. And through that gives them power and through that can save Calcifer because she can, she can give life to things. Uh, so I wanted to talk some about Sort of that that sort of dichotomy that the book builds, and again, as you said, Grin, like very slowly, because um, it, it really doesn't make it clear right away. There are those little hints, etc., and lots of little breadcrumbs throughout, but it's not it's not until a bit later that we actually start getting that as like 
something to look out for. So I really like that kind of differentiation. I feel like um, for a lot of things, you you either have this very traditional sort of witch character, uh, or you might say have a, a good witch, but in this case where we get one of each, I, I think makes it a little bit interesting. I feel like a lot of people's instinct is to say that like, and it's, I mean, it is still true that like Howl and the Witch of the Waste are like very much foils for one another, but it's interesting to sort of learn halfway through, right? That, that Sophie and the Witch of the Waste are also these, these foils to each other. And the, the idea that, that her magic is so different from what the Witch has now become, right? Because like the difference there is that the, with, between her and Howl is that the witch has kind of let herself become corrupted by the the demon that she's made this contract with. And Sophie's magic is just so, like, almost well-meaning in, in every way, right? The, the only time she gets even remotely antagonistic is when she repeatedly yells at the scarecrow to just go away. And in doing so, gifts him, like, superhuman speed and, and all kinds of other nonsense. Um, <laughs> I, I think that was just one of my... Like easily one of my favorite things was sort of slowly realizing that that the important connections you know weren't exactly between the characters that you thought they were. And I mean, also like by the end of the book, we, we realized that the the Witch of the Waste is like literally she has like death magic. Like she's deep in necromancy. She's putting body parts together and like making a, a I guess I guess kind of a homunculus out of body parts um and like you know she's magic she's got death magic going on and sophie has life magic going on so like it like you really can't make a a stronger like compare and contrast if you tried (laughs) yeah also how fun is it that sophie's first kind of magical unintentional magical exploration is that she makes magical hats by talking to them because she has nobody else to talk to and they like have unintentional spells on them because she's trying to talk them up and tell them like oh yeah like you're gonna make somebody you know very happy and whatnot and the descriptions of the hats themselves also made me very happy like this one has mushrooms on it Yeah, like, I mean, I love there's the one, right, that her friend ends up buying, and then she, like, you know, within a couple of days, like, gets married to some kind of duke, right? And she's, like, talk, she talks the magic into this hat that allows her to to sort of, uh, for this guy to fall for her, right? Can we talk for a second about how powerful Sophie is? She <laughs> yeah. is ridiculously powerful. Oh, yeah. Like, she just, she could just do whatever she wants. Uh, yeah, I mean... In theory, there must be some kind of limit, but, I mean, everything she, like, I mean, her magic just seems to work constantly, and and every time she tries to do anything, once she realizes what she's doing, it never doesn't work. Yeah, like, oh, Calcifer just gets to live for a thousand years, like. Yeah. What? (laughs) That is some powerful shit. (laughs) And and even where, like, you know, up until then, it's the sort of thing where, like, I guess it's implied that, you know, it's more that she can make, say, like, a she can make artifacts of some sort. Like, it takes a while. It takes, like, layering. It takes, like, time to have this conversation and to, like, lay like, layer the magic in bit by bit. But then, yeah, at the very end, it's just like, oh, nope. Yeah. Thousand yeah, years. Like, there you go. Once, yeah. once Sophie knows what she's doing, that's all it takes. Yeah, because it was really, I mean, it was a really interesting idea. And I have to wonder if if 
maybe it's written as sort of like this was like a, a flare-up, right, of power in the midst of all of this going on. But that, uh, like, the idea that Sophie's brand of magic is this whole, like, sort of, like, manufacturing process of magic, right, where she's, um, not even necessarily she's making something, but she this, like, constant dialogue is what the magic actually is, was what was so fascinating to me. The idea that she's sitting there and making these hats, and in doing so and talking to them at the same time, she's sort of crafting this magic into them, right? It's very different from the kind of traditional magic you're used to seeing, and even the stuff you see from, right, Howl and the Witch of the Waste. Yeah, it was... It was interesting to me, I think, the the way magic, like, works in this world, because apparently any old schmuck can, like, learn magic. Like, you just go get an apprenticeship with a, with a sorcerer or a witch or, you know, whatever, and then, boom, you, you're learning magic. I mean, it's, like was, a, it's a trade. That was one thing that I really liked in the book that we didn't get in the movie, right, was that um, this world is incredibly magical, and it's so much more fascinating. There's, there, like there are all of these witches like there are a bunch of witches in this book yeah um and there's a there's you know there's a handful of wizards and there's just a lot of people that can do magic and do do magic and it's it's so much it's so much cooler to to like that the world feels more magical overall oh oh i just remembered the main thing i wanted to bring up which was also like the thing that i i feel personally is the main or the starkest difference between the book and the movie. Can we talk about how a variation of present day Wales is one of the worlds that exists in this book? Yeah, that threw me for a loop. Like it's, it seems to be Wales of 2001 when this book was published, like the kids are playing computer games and they have a television and it's just like, it's not a, big thing it doesn't end up being like oh here's this huge revelation this huge twist of like actually Hal is from modern day Wales it's just like a thing like anything else and it's not thoroughly discussed in any way it's just like yeah there's this other world that's like basically urban fantasy land uh but it, it doesn't end up being a huge like M. Night Shyamalan twist. Yeah, I feel like it, the book does a great job with like letting itself have a million like sort of surprising moments by just never really making a big deal out of any of them. It's just like, oh yeah, and like Howl's like old teacher is like this royal wizard. And it's like, oh, like Howl's actually like even more powerful or important than you thought he was. Or like, oh no, Howl like goes around spreading stories about himself and like he's really like this way or that way or like even like the big like sort of climactic battle between Howl and the Witch of the Wastes at like the funeral. It's just kind of this thing that just sort of happens. And yeah, by just like being very casual about all of these like twists and turns, it I, I feel like it it even does like such a good job of making it like this characterization of Sophie where it's just like even though, like, she is young at heart, let's say, and, like, in memory and experience, just whether it's just the way Sophie is or part of the curse, where she's just like, yep, I've seen it all before. No big deal. Oh, God. I loved that moment where, like, where Hal was like, listen, I've been trying to lift the spell, but you want it to stay on, and I can't, like, I can't yeah. beat you. <laughs> like, that was... 
that was a great moment. Yeah. Yeah. Towards the end there, where Howell just like they're going and just like they're just so fed up with one another that they just like say all the things that, and you realize like how similar they are and it's just like oh yeah you're each like sitting around stewing about the other like making all these plans like just not talking because you're like making all these assumptions whatever and it's like yeah i no like fuck me fuck you it, <laughs> it yeah it's it's the moment of catharsis you didn't even know you wanted and it's just like, oh, yeah, no, like, for all this to just come out. And, like, because you you, it, you as the reader can pick up that Sophie has feelings for Howl. But it, that whole sense of, it, you didn't even know that you wanted each of them to just, like, snap and just put it all out on the table. Because so much of it you just take for granted, like, when Sophie's just like, oh, Howl is this way or Howl does these things. And you're like, oh, well, maybe not, but it does seem to be like that and blah, blah, blah. But it... I never even realized that, like, the thing that you want more than anything at the end is for each of them to just stop being so pig-headed and just, like, be honest with one another for once. The other thing is, like, Hal's... It's hard to write a vain character who was also, like, that vanity is really somewhat charming and hilarious and not just obnoxious and annoying, but Diana Wynne-Jones does that very well. And that's something that does translate... To the movie very well like the scene where his hair is a different color and he just flips out about it and his his hair and appearance related depression and the green slime like that's some of the best parts of the book so do we have anything else we want to say about witches <laughs> <laughs> yes but in the context of other stuff so i'll save it but i I will say though that I I really do like uh, I do like that we got to start with I, I like that we get to start with this you know like it not that we determine the order of our things on a topic by topic basis but I do think that this uh, this works out really nicely but that we got to start with two witches one of whom is very wholesome and one of whom is very you know is kind of the traditional villainous witch but. Uh, traditional is the wrong word because the other thing that I like about it is that it's something that where the Witch of the Waste fill, fits into a lot of witchy tropes, but still manages to buck expectations and be non-traditional and be something a little bit different. But then that we also get someone like Sophie as as one of our first witches for the topic. I, I think that it's a very, I think it's a really nice starting point. Um I guess is is the best thing that that I can say without diving into uh, the witch or Gruntilda. But I, I I will say that it's it's nice to get to start with this one. I, I like that a lot. I think that uh, an interesting thing to talk about in the topic episode is going to be sort of like how magic works, um, and I, I really liked the way magic works in in the book. Um, I like sort of the 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 mundane and formulaic side of 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 it, and also the the deal with the devil side of it, and also the like sort of like naturalistic side of it. These like very different systems that all sort of work together and uh, and and coexist in this universe. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's something that really sets it apart in terms of like a representation of magic. Like, usually a magic system in any given sort of, like, fictional world is very 
structured and there's kind of one or two, you know, types of like there's kind of one way you're going to perform a magic and there might be many different types of magic that you can perform, but it's always like here is the way that you cast a spell or do a thing that is magical. And in this it's like it's just the world is incredibly magical and everybody kind of has their own way of making it happen. And that's so fascinating. I think one thing that, that was really nice about it though, is she, uh, she avoids the trap of over explaining it. It, even though there is kind of this sense that there is a, almost a, like a physical or material or almost like an engineering aspect to magic in, in this world, like a thing that can be learned. You have people like say Sophie, who certainly seem to have an innate talent for it. But when they talk about like building a spell or kind of like buying a spell and that it's like mixes of powders and that it, there certainly seems to be a, a level of it that is just chemistry or something like that. Um, but at no point does she get too far into it. Like it, it still feels like magic, you know, at no point does it feel like, like, I think it can be really interesting to have a story where magic is just kind of like a, a stand-in for technology or something like that, or a, a world where, because of the existence of magic, technology didn't grow and change, and you have something that now is, like, analogous to that, etc. And it can be really fun to explore, like, how a magic system works, but I, I really like that we still get that feeling of, even though it's something that just anyone can learn to some degree in this universe, it, it still feels like magic to us, which I think was a very... I imagine that to be a very difficult line to walk. And I, I think that she really does a good job with it. I feel like I wanted to say something else, but I'm not sure. Well, certainly before we wrap up, uh, there was there was one thing that I would like to, to spend at least a little bit of time on because I, I brought it up a little bit earlier, but it really is my, my favorite thing about this story in, in both of its incarnations is the fact that it really does seem to be about family and found family and sort of reconnecting with you know, the rest of your family through that found family, kind of to go back to that, that moment that Justin, you brought up. Um, it, it doesn't have anything to do with witches. It's not part of the broader thing. I mean, I guess we can talk about it a little bit in, you know, some of the other contexts. I mean, are Banjo and Kazooie a found family? Who can say? But, um, <laughs> you know, it, but for something like that, I, it, it really is one of the things that I, I like a lot about the book and the, the book has, it, it really, it does have a lot. It spends a lot of time thinking about family, right? Like you've got, you have Sophie and her sisters at the beginning and you've got their father and their mother and then their stepmother and sort of this evolution of the way that Sophie sees uh, her, her stepmother as kind of from just sort of like this sort of, person to whom she owes the sort of duty to, to someone who, for whom she works, to, you know, while she's at this point where she just kind of is accepting her lot in life as the eldest sister and therefore the one who can't go out on adventures and is expected to just kind of take over the family business. Um, and then she goes and she's talking to... I don't remember who it actually is that she's talking to. I'm going to say Martha, Martha because I think it's Martha. It's Martha. Yeah. Uh, where, you know, Martha's going and is kind of explaining, like, it's like, oh, no, she's, like, taking advantage of you, and she's actually this kind of, like, nasty woman and all of these things. And she was, like, uh, she's doing all these things kind of behind the scenes, and she really just wants what's best for her, and, like, you're you're just kind of, you're getting the short end of the stick here. Um, but then, like, by the end, as she's kind of 
gone through that kind of coming of age thing and she sort of comes around and you see that it she sort of has she gets to jump right to being able to look back and be like mm, you know or maybe she was just kind of doing the best she could with what she had and you know yeah she she got it wrong and but she also you know that happens and that's okay and all those i that you get that whole sort of you get that whole arc with that character which i feel like is something that that doesn't always happen. Uh, very frequently, I feel like a, a character's story arc with someone else will often be from point A to B as opposed to A to B to C. Um, and having that f- sort of flow in the middle and that it's kind of incidental and it's not because one of the characters has this big revelation or starts to see it their way or something like that. They just have a bit more experience and come to terms with stuff. I I like that a lot. And just the idea of going off into the world and finding people like Michael even, you know, where it's sort of this, like, it's kind of a mix of like a grandmother slash aunt slash older sister relationship with Michael and this sort of like caretaker, but also confidant with, with Calcifer and it just finding this group of people out in the world with whom you identify and this, this new family that you can make. And that doesn't mean you lose your old family. It doesn't mean you love them any less. It's just, you get to go out into the world and grow and you don't lose those other things. You just, it can just be additive. I, I don't know. I like that a lot. That was always something that really spoke to me is nice and charming. And you're not defined by where you come from, but you don't have to throw it away entirely when you, when you go out and become someone else. I think what I liked particularly about the relationship with the stepmother um, was the perspective that Sophie got from being an old woman and how the, you know, there was the shift in the way she thought of people. And at one point she was like, oh, a young man of 50. And just like the way she thought about things differently as an, as an old woman and, and the perspective that brought. And when she looked back on, um, on Fanny and she was like, no, yeah, like she's a young woman who suddenly realized that like, maybe she was wasting her life and was doing the best for these people who, you know, still look to her for, for for care but she she didn't want to she didn't want that to just be the end of her life like she she still had more to do and she was right she was very young she did have more to do so i really liked that the perspective that being old brought to sophie as a character and i guess just sort of uh to circle back to the original family versus found family like strictly um what i thought was so great about how it's done here right is that so often in stories that are about like you know finding a new family when you need one right it's so much about you you ha- you are completely cut off from your original family or you have lost them or they are awful right these kinds of things were like there's an impetus to find a new family and to find a new place that feels like home because your family does not provide these things that you need and so for this story to never you know to be so much about finding a new family but with the idea that you you don't lose your old family by just doing so and that and that those connections can stay there and that it doesn't always you know finding a new family isn't always necessitated by losing the old one uh is incredibly valuable and it's like a an idea and a storyline that we don't see well i think that's that's the note that i i want to end on at least i i think that that's it, for me that's so much of the book right like that's that's so the core to the whole thing that 
that I, I know, that I like the most. So I, unless anyone else has, has anything else they want to say, I think that, I think that's where we should wrap. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, so this has been our, our episode on Howl's Moving Castle. Uh, next episode, we will talking about, we will be talking about something completely different. Uh, we will be watching The Witch, which is a scary movie. Fantastic. And then we're going to be coming around to, to Banjo-Kazooie, which is as a horrifying game. I mean, if that's, it's fair. It's got witches in it. It's got like a, it's got like a scientist helper guy in it. It's got, it's got a bear and a bird and some sort of unholy relationship. I mean, a bird so, just like stuffed into a backpack. Like, yeah, that's no good stuff of nightmares. Yeah. That's not where you keep birds, but so, yeah. So we really do have a, a real, I don't know, a real, a real topic of terror coming up as, as we go. God, how do I always get pulled into these? Anyway, um, so that's going to be it for Howl's Moving Castle. Uh, just a reminder, next topic, which is a ways off right now, but if you want to get started, is going to be Fairy Tales 2.0. The read for that, again, is going to be The Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter, The Watch, Shrek, and Shrek 2, The Play, The Wolf Among Us. But for now, we're going to be moving into The Witch for the second episode of our Witches Topic. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Read, Watch, Play. If you want to help us out, the best thing you can do is tell a friend about the show. You can also rate and review the podcast on iTunes. If you want to find us on social media, you can follow us at RWP Podcast on Twitter and like us at facebook.com slash RWP Podcast. 